moment from Genesis chapter 5. So if you want to go ahead and locate that in your bulletin or look on the screen. And we're trying a new intro into like this is the signal when it's time for you to read. Uh, the people of God read the word of God. And that'll be your signal to read. But let me give a little intro into what we're doing today. You ever heard the term flyover states? Flyover states refers to that swath of the country that's in between the East Coast and the West Coast. And it was really developed by, it really came about from the entertainment industry. They viewed, really, there were only two important places in the country, right? L.A. and New York and everything else. You just flew over. It's, it's also been picked up in politics to refer to that area of the country that politicians only vent, uh, visit about once every four years when they're looking for votes. Everything else is like big cities and metropolitan areas. And, you know, I think that like flyover states, there are some flyover texts in the Bible. There are parts of the Bible that we come to and you're reading through the Bible that you just sort of like, let's, let's get through this, right? I just, I'm sort of going to get through this. Uh, it's better viewed from 30,000 feet maybe. You know, it's like I, I, I'm not really, I really don't know what to do with this. And I think what we're looking at today, what I'm going to make you read in just a second out loud is one of those passages because it's all the bagats, It's all the genealogy. And it starts with Adam and it comes, ends with Noah. And it's one of those passages that may feel for us like a bridge. Like, okay, we're connecting two parts of the story, but this is kind of boring or irrelevant or I don't know what to do with this. Uh, nobody's got a verse from Genesis 5, I can promise you, on a bulletin board to memorize. Nobody's got this on your fridge or a little nice plaque in your house with this, any verses from this chapter. And yet this is so important. And God has rich things to give us this morning, even from this. So let's turn our attention to God's Word and the, the people of God. Read the Word of God. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Seth, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. When Lil lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, 
All the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God had taken him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called him Noah. And out of the ground that the Father Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived, Noah, 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. There's nothing like your word. And there are some parts that are easier for us, some parts that are more difficult. We pray, Father, that you would meet us as we open up this part of your word and that you would give us help and hope and healing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple of uh, genealogy jokes for you this morning because, you know, you need that jumping into genealogy. So what happens, uh, you know, you know that uh, genealogy is dangerous. You know, what happens when you shake your family tree? Anybody know? All the nuts come falling out, right? All the nuts. It's dangerous for you. Or what about this one? Did you know that, uh, did you hear the one about the retired genealogist? Neither did I. Genealogists don't die. They just lose their roots. Get it? All right. Yeah, okay. So that's what I thought. Uh, you know, for modern people, this study in genealogy, like many of the places in the Bible, feels like flyover material. But for the Israelite people, for the first people particularly who heard this, coming out of Exodus, coming out of, of, of Egypt, this was incredibly important. This is incredibly significant information because it doesn't just communicate history, it tells a story. Now, a couple things about genealogies for us to, to look at this. You can tell first that this isn't flyover material because of the way it begins. Beginning of chapter 5 reads almost like a third creation story, a third creation account. It goes right back to Adam and says, this is the beginning. In the beginning, this is God making Adam in his likeness and then him fathering children in his likeness. And it, it, it's meant to tell us like, oh, this is a big deal. This is telling us something that is incredibly important. Um, Ancient genealogies, second thing here is ancient gene genealogies were not viewed in the way that we often view them as chronological. So we, we would think you would take a genealogy like this and you could add up all the years 
of all the generations and sort of get a numerical timeline of how old or how far back things go. But one of the challenges of that is that uh, ancient genealogies did not necessarily imply a continuous sequence. So when it says this person begat this person or this person was son of, it can mean grandson, it can mean relative, it can mean ancestor. And you can see this in other places in genealogy in the Bible. In particular, I want to highlight Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew. Jesus' genealogy is divided up. It's interesting. If you read it, it's sort of 14 groups of 14, three groups of 14 going back to Adam. And the point of that, it's selective to tell a story. It's selective on purpose, not just to recount all of who is who is who is who, but to say God is up to something in this. So we don't, you know, it's easy to come to this with sort of modern ears, modern eyes, and say, what does this mean to me? And yet I want to start with what does this mean for the people who first received this? What is the story that God wants to tell from this genealogy? And it's really important. God has a story to tell. So let me just remind you of where we were last week. I've done, this is now my second week in genealogy. I know, like, that may be, I can't believe you showed up this Sunday. Maybe you didn't know that last week. So nobody warned you to stay home this week. Uh, But chapter 4 is the genealogy of what happened after Cain and Abel. Cain's, Cain, Adam's son, kills his brother Abel. And then what happens after that, the rest of what we read last week, was the dumpster fire family line of Cain. All of the sin and disobedience and destruction that came in generation after generation of Cain's family line. And it's meant to be read in contrast to what we just read this morning. The heavy lifting that you did this morning, the family line of Seth. The end of chapter 4, if you remember, ended with this hopeful kind of change. God is doing something new. It ends with, and Noah and, I mean, sorry, and Adam knew his wife and they had another child, and his name was Seth. And from that time forth, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so this line of Seth is the line of faithfulness compared to the line of Cain, which is the line of unfaithfulness. We're supposed to read these against one another. So a couple of things I want you to see about this. Many of the names in the two chapters match. If you go back and read chapter 4, And chapter 5, there's an Enoch in both of them. There's a Lamech in both of them. Both chapters have these, and they could not be more different personalities, more different in the ways that they are either turned toward God or turned away from God. There's also all these names that sound or are spelled almost the same. You remember some of the words that you tripped up on in this genealogy? Mahalalel, remember that, your favorite one? Lots of people thinking about that for a baby name in the future, right? Mahalalel, fathered Methuselah. Well, that, that sounds like in Hebrew and is spelled like Mahujael and Methushael from chapter 4. Again, we're supposed to read these against one another. These are two families that are turned two very different directions. And so there's a line of faithfulness. There's a line of unfaithfulness. And the question of the text, now here's what I need you to get this morning. The question is, which family, which lineage will you trust in? 
That's the question being asked of the, from the text to the first people who read this and to people sitting in this room reading this. Which family line are you going to put your trust in? Which lineage? Nothing shows off this more than the numbers. <laughs> the numbers. Did you notice the numbers? Yeah, you can't help but notice the numbers, right? I mean, we read these and we're like, 900 plus years? Are you kidding me? Did they not know how to add back then? Did they not know what a year was back then? And there, there have been all kinds of speculation like, well, maybe this is months, but those don't add up really. Um, so I want to look at the numbers because the numbers also tell a story. Now, I want to say this before I, I go on. You are welcome to read this as at face value as literal information, as this person lived for 800 years. They fathered a child at 500 years old. You can read it that way. But there's another way in faithfully understanding this text to understand what's being said with these numbers. Here goes. If they mean what 21st century English speakers mean by the ages, this boggles the mind, doesn't it? I mean, tooth decay, bone density, all those cell life, you know, it, it challenges us to say, huh, things were really different back then, or I don't understand what's going on here. But my question's not, what does this mean for us? What would this mean in the way we talk? But how would the original hearers of this have understood this? And I want to point this out. Ancient people in the ancient Near East, um, not just in Israel, but the surrounding nations, understood and used numbers in ways that were both the same as you do and different from the way we do. So archaeologists have found receipts from transactions where somebody sells something, a good or a service, and there's a receipt that's issued. This is in Palestine. This is in uh, Judea, uh, Judah. This is in lots of the surrounding areas. They found all these receipts that show they used math the same way you use math. So like addition, subtraction, multiplication. We all got that. And yet, there are also ways that they used numbers that were very different from the way that we do. So in ancient Sumeria, and their genealogies, there are lists of these kings. And they likewise have ages which boggle the mind. The longest living king on the Sumerian king's list, 28,800 years. Which tells you, huh, I doubt somebody lived 28,800 years. Something else is going on with this. Well, ancient people also, ancient Near Eastern people understood numerology to also imply significance. And this is non-mathematical. This is just saying this person is incredibly important. And this person is also, like the Sumerian kings, connected to a god. So the Sumerian kings list is a really helpful like, reflection on this passage of just saying, there are ways of understanding this that imply these people right here, really significant. In fact, if you notice the difference between chapter 4 and chapter 5, again, the line of unfaithfulness and the line of faithfulness, we get no numbers, no ages in chapter 4 at all with the dumpster fire line of Cain. But we get all these precise numbers that are gigantic for the line of Seth, the line of faithfulness. And I think the whole text is going like this. This one right here, if you weren't paying attention, this one, this one right here, Seth, this is the line. This is the line of faithfulness. This is what God is up to right now. 
they're intended to tell a story. There are a couple of, if you're like, I don't know about this, there are a couple of internal reasons to Scripture why I think this as well. If you read along in Genesis and you keep going, you, you realize that, um, that probably there's something more going on with these ages. When it said that Abraham, this is in chapter 25, died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. What, if you're reading that in the context of chapter 5 of this book, Abraham died tragically young at age 175, right? He's incredibly young. If you keep reading, uh, Abraham and Sarah's expression of incredulity about being able to have a baby in their old age at age 100. Well, that's nothing, right? That's nothing compared to his family that went before him. Uh, Noah, who fathered children to 500, or Methuselah, who fathered children to 187, or even Abraham's dad, Terah, who fathered children to 130. See, there's something else going on here. And I think it's meant to say this. This is the line. And it's asking the question, which lineage will you trust in? Now, that was a question that was important for them, and it's a question that's important for us. Which lineage will you trust in? Because there is a way where we can repeat the patterns of generational sin or we can repeat the patterns of generational faithfulness. Notice here, as well as in chapter 4, the number 7 is significant. If you you read the lists and go down through the list and the family line, and you start with... um, Cain's family and go down seven names into that one, and Seth's family and go down into seven names, you find two different people who exemplify two different directions. So the seventh in Cain's line was a man named Lamech. And we we find out in chapter four, he's um, the first polygamist, the first Mormon, right? Took two wives. He's also repeating the sins of his great-grandfather, Great, 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 going back to Cain, and that he's a murderer. By contrast, we read here, the seventh in Seth's line is a man named Enoch. What do we read about Enoch? He's a man who walked with God. It's a description of connection, intimacy with God. And then the Bible says, and then he was no more, for God had taken him away. The only person in the Bible who is recorded as never having died. And there's, again, the contrast. Enoch... Lamech, line of faithfulness, line of unfaithfulness. Now, this is, this is, um, there's also a testimony of this even in the last name listed in chapter 5. Who's the last person listed in chapter 5? Noah. Good. A couple of y'all awake this morning. Noah was the last person in, listed. And Noah's, I want you to hear the testimony of Noah's name. Noah, family, Noah's name means rest in Hebrew. This is even kind of spelled out for us. Out of the ground, this is verse uh, 29, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, rest. He shall bring us Noah from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. God is saying, this line, this is what God is up to in the world. Remember how important rest is in these first chapters of Genesis. On the seventh day, we read that God himself observed a Sabbath rest and forever calls people following that creational pattern to observe a Sabbath rest. And that God is going to bring through Noah rest for his people from their sin. God is going to bring rest 
More on that for the next week. We're going to spend four weeks in Noah. But the question of, of this passage again, generational faithfulness, generational unfaithfulness. Which line will you live out of? Now, who's that question for? It, it, it's definitely for the people coming out of Egypt. Remember, the first people who received a written version of Genesis would have been the people coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, coming into the desert to follow God and wander and come to Mount Sinai and then spend another 40 years wandering until they came into the promised land. And why was that? God found that their hearts, the place of the desert was a place of testing for them because what was revealed in their hearts was they were, even though they were, their ancestry was Israelite, their hearts were Egyptian. They loved the stuff of Egypt. And so this question is kind of being posed to them. Which line will you follow? Will you follow the line of Egypt or the, the line of Yahweh? He's taking you to the promised land. Which one will you trust in? But this question is also for us. It's also for you. Which generational story will your life tell? You know, family history and generational patterns are stuff that we talk about. There's even a progressive commercial. Have you seen this one? That asks the question, can't help becoming your parents, can you? Right? That's sort of funny, not funny, isn't it? Um, Maybe you've watched the second season of Ted Lasso. My wife called this way before I read this anywhere else. That It's an entire season based on relationships between fathers and their children. Nate's broken relationship with his dad, right? Um, the uh, relationship between Jamie Tart and his dad that's terrible. Uh, Sam and his good relationship with his dad. Rebecca mourning her dad. Ted Lasso's relationship with his dad and the effects on him. Like, all those are repeated, the Bible speaks over and over, and I just want to step back and think about with this with you a moment. The Bible speaks over and over again about the influence and the impact of generations upon generations. Have you heard this in, in Genesis, I mean sorry, in Exodus 34, God tells Israel that he visits the iniquity of the fathers onto their children to the third and fourth generation. Hard to hear. I mean, he's saying there's an impact. There's an influence. Lamentations 5 says, this, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. They, they impact us. They're consequences. And yet, also here, Ezekiel 18, which says, The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, or the father for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The, the reformer, the French reformer, John Calvin, he wrestled with this a lot. Like, these seem contradictory. The sins are passed down, and yet every person stands individually for their own sins and bear their own sins. How do we hold these together? And Calvin was like, studied this and wrestled with it. He's like, actually, this makes a lot of sense. He says, in the final judgment, yes, God will hold every person accountable for their sins only. Every person will stand and give an answer for their life. And yet, he says, and I love this statement, he says, the children are loaded with the sins of the fathers. There are consequences and impacts and influence from one generation to the next. 
And we need to be aware of that. If, if you're not aware of that, it, it, it's like getting hit by a truck you didn't see coming. Many, many of you may know the, the old song by Harry Chapin, Cats in the Cradle. You ever heard this song before? The Cats in the Cradle is a song about a father, and he's on the phone, he's calling up his adult son. And he's remembering back to the way that he raised his son, and that he was always busy, and he was always working, and he was pursuing money, and he was busy doing all those things, and he wakes up at some point older in his life and realizes, I kind of missed out, and I'd like a relationship now with my adult son that I never got to know, and he calls him up, and he says, hey, can we hang out? And his son says, well, I'm really busy. You know, I've got a lot going on with my work and my family, and, you know, we'll catch up sometime. And and it closes this way. As I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. You know know the song, all right? So, um, and the story tells us this, right? Family influence. Things are passed down generationally. I mean, some of those traits are positive, right? I mean, they're positive things we get, uh, like nurturing skills or valuing hard work. But they're also negative and destructive behaviors that are passed down from one generation to the next. See, the question, which lineage are you living out of? Generational faithfulness, generational unfaithfulness. I want you to think, and I'm going to push on you a little bit this morning. So I didn't, you didn't, I didn't show up here just to be nice. I'm going to preach, okay? But like, um, I want to ask you to think about some of the generational sins in your life. I'm going to list a bunch, and I just want you to sit with these. Uh, See if you can find yourself in this list. Lying or exaggerating the truth. Materialism. Manipulation. Destructive anger. Chemical dependence. Neglect. Problems with money. Conflict avoidance, racism, emotional dependency, sexual sins, physical abuse, controlling behavior of other people, given to catastrophizing, moralistic rigidity, abusive speech, shaming, Narcissism, inferiority or low self-esteem, living in fear. I mean, those sins are so damaging, aren't they? I mean, doesn't it make you kind of angry listening to that list? Really? Doesn't it make you a little bit angry Listen to that list? Really? Okay. Yeah, it makes me angry. I mean, how selfish and self-consumed you have to be to blindly pass on to the next generation all this junk. You know, how many of you are aware of those things or struggled with those things in your life? I mean, aren't, aren't we just, aren't you upset at how much you're passing on those things to the next generation? Wait, I, I, could, tell, I could tell from some of your faces you thought I was talking about your parents. I, I was talking about us. I'm talking about the things, of course, of course our parents have passed on stuff to us. I'm actually talking about what we're passing on to the next generation. 
And whether or not you have kids, I mean, whether or not you have kids, we as a church, we got kids. And there are kids. And, and we're, we're consciously or unconsciously influencing people all the time around us. We're discipling them. We're training other people of what God is like. And we're passing that on, especially in generational ways. You know, how do you break with generational patterns? How do you break with your, what has been handed down for you and then what you created on your own, just your own creativity? Like, we've made our own cocktail out of this, and it's great. How do you do that? I mean, you have to choose. You have to choose. You know, am I going, what, what pathway is my life going to take? And here's the good news of this passage, and I really want to give you good news this morning. Because not only is there generational sin and generational faithfulness, but we have a generational God. And this is such hopeful news for, you, for me and for you this morning from this passage. You know, recently, someone at CTK gave me a copy of this, which is the First Nations Version, an indigenous translation of the New Testament. And it was translated by a group of native peoples in this country for native peoples. And it's a fascinating read, right? This, this is the only, only the New Testament, but it translates names by their meaning. Uh, and, and so, like, you know, this is an easy one. Peter's name means rock. So they call him rock in here. They call Jesus, um, they call Jesus creator sets free. They call Abraham father of, of many. And, and, you know, it's in, like, you'll be reading a sentence that goes like this. Creator sets free, entered the temple, and saw that it was evening. You know, it's written kind of like that. Uh, it takes a little getting used to, but what's interesting about it is the text is not taking any liberties with the Bible and how it's translated. It's just doing it actually in ways that are more faithful than many of our English translations to tell us what the names mean. Because unlike English, where your name means whatever your mom and dad liked that week, right, their names were extremely important and meaningful. I've already told you, like Noah's name in this passage means rest. So let me just review the names in this passage, okay? I'm just going to walk through them and tell you what they mean. Because again, God is telling a story. So Adam means, remember I said dirtling (laughs) or man. Seth, appointed. Enosh means mortal man. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel, means the blessed God. Jared means descended. Enoch means to disciple or train up. Methuselah means death will send away or cast out. Lamech means the depressed or despairing. And Noah means rest. Now, this is not backmasking. This isn't Bible code weird stuff from, you know, some kind of Bible code book. This is the names that God tells of a generational God. Let me put this together. This forms a sentence. It says this, Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Let me read that again. Man is appointed to mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Does that sound familiar to you? I mean, even here in the fifth chapter of the book of Genesis, we're already reading in this sequence of names. I mean, it doesn't make sense in any other order. 
But we're reading the story that will be written in blood on a Roman cross. Right, that God, a generational God, will himself come down and suffer to bring the despairing hope that God is a God who is able to break all patterns and to break all chains and to set us free from sin? I mean, heck yeah, I'm all about that. I mean, what good news is there written in Scripture over and over of God's power to break the just the this begets this begets this? God is a God of generations. So look, let me just drive this home with you. Do you come from a family that reads a lot more like Cain than Seth? God is able. God is able. Do you, you yourself, does your life reflect not faithfulness, not faith-filled passing this on to my kids, but lots of hypocrisy and, and conflict? And God is able. God is a God of generations. God is able to work even in train wrecks. You know, when you look at your family life, your life so far, and what you're passing on to the next generation, does it read less than hopeful, maybe entirely destructive? God is faithful and able. I just want to encourage you to sit in this and not dismiss it. I know it's hard when I'm picking at the scab of generational wounds and sins and all that destruction. It makes some people really uncomfortable. Like, you're sitting here, your jaw, what do you think you're doing, pastor? You're blaming my parents. My, my hope and my point this morning is not to blame your parents. It's to look at ourselves. When we look back at our parents and generations before us, it is not to blame, it is to name that's how one psychologist puts it. I think it's really helpful because blaming has a sense of like, I'm going to like label you and dismiss you, put you out of my life. That's not what we're about. But you name things courageously in order to deal with them, in order to name them before the Lord and ask him to be at work in those things. You have, a, and I have a choice, a regular, repeated choice. Will we choose to turn toward God and the hope that he brings to break patterns in our lives for the hope of those who come after us? Or will we do the same old, same old? Will we continue? I mean, this, this whole thing is just called discipleship. It's got a positive direction and a negative direction. So let me give you the negative direction. The negative direction means repenting of your sins every day. Coming into a place like this, it's a reason why we have confession of sin every week. We're like, I need this all the time. You know, I'm always, my life is always turning away from the Lord, and I need to be brought back facing toward the Lord. This is a regular pattern for the life of a believer. If your life reflects no regular pattern of repenting of your sins, it's broken. You're not following Jesus. That is not discipleship. Discipleship means you're putting off you're asking God to forgive you and to change you. And it also means positively moving toward practices that bring you more and more in line with God's patterns in your life. Regularly being part of worship, of worship. Regularly fellowshipping with unbelievers. Singing worship songs in the shower. 
Yes, spending time alone silently with the Lord. Those things are nurturing and cultivating in your life a life that is turned toward Him. This is a daily practice for Christians. Will I turn toward Him in hope? Or will I continue the same old, same old? Let me ask you this question. Why do you think that God wants to break generational patterns? Why do you think God would be into that? John 10.10 tells us something really important about the inner life of Jesus. He says this, The thief comes only to steal and destroy, but I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Not little bits, in abundance, overflowing. What is God's intention for you? It is for your flourishing and your blessing and your hope and your renewal for life. This is what God wants to do in you. God wants your freedom and your encouragement and your hope. He wants you to have life and have it abundantly. You know, I know that this year has been incredibly hard for us. There's probably not a person in this room who's going like, man, last 20 months, so awesome. Right, now, this is what's happened to us. It's like a tube of toothpaste. Uh, this is a, an argument in our family. What do you squeeze in the middle or do you roll it slowly from the bottom? I tell you, boys, all, we all squeeze from the middle, okay? But this is what, this is what uh, the, the, virus, the pandemic has done for all of us. It's squeezed. And what's in the tube has come out of the tube. And what's inside of us, in our hearts, has been on full display. And what's funny about that is people are always like, well, that's not really me. All the fear and anger and worry and freaking out and all those things, that's not really me. That's more you than what's on the outside written on the outside of that tube that you want to believe is you, the nice version. What's laying on the counter, all the, the stuff that gets like hardened and crusty, that's the real you. And God does this. Can you believe this? God actually allows pandemics and allows a squeeze in your life for your good. Now, I can't label all the things that have happened to you this year good. I'm not saying that. But the overall big picture is God never squeezes using a pandemic without doing so for a better purpose in your life. He wants to show you what's on the inside so you can deal with it. God is never out to harm us, but only to heal us. God is a surgeon, not a, but a butcher. When he makes cuts in our lives, he's like, I want to cut out this gangrene. I'm not just hacking away at you. God is kind. This is who your God is. And the question, again, is up to us. Which way? Are, are you going to just pass on a baton in your life of generational unfaithfulness? Are you going to drop the baton and pick up something better that's from the Lord? Here's my last appeal. Would you look at your kids? And would you look at our kids? Because they're, y'all, when, when you're part of the church, they're, your kid, they're our kids. Would you look at our kids? And, you know, this is my hope, and this is our hope collectively, isn't it? That they would outpass us in the next generation in their zeal for the Lord, and their love and joy in Christ, and their freedom. They wouldn't be weighed down like you and I are. They would, exp they would run where we've walked. 
or crawled. And there would be a, a difference to the children coming out of the, the lives in this church and in all the lives we touch because they read off of us, this is a God who's real. This is a God who changes people. This is a God who's making all things new. Is that what God, what they would read about God off your life right now? So you have an opportunity today to change the narrative. The choice is up to you. Which lineage will you live out of? Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, these are hard words, and yet they're filled with hope. And sometimes what's hard for us about your word, Lord, is the hard and the hope go together. That facing and naming and owning actually can bring us to the cross where there's freedom. Father, we, we want to be people who look to the next generation and see, Lord, hope written all over them. And that's hard for us today. Many of us are struggling with despair and discouragement. Many of us feel very beaten up. Many of us feel like we have been squeezed harder than we could bear in this past 20 months. But Lord, you are a God who makes all things new. We lift our eyes to you today. Lord, renew our hopes this morning. Remind us, Lord, of, of your power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.